A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. The hidden, pesky, persistent challenges in data-intensive applications, services, ML. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Ebru Kusin, who's the lead consultant at OpenCredo. To be clear, though, Ebru was only representing her own views in this episode. So some key takeaways or thoughts from Ebru's point of view. Number one, it's far too hard for data producers to actually reliably produce clean, trustworthy, and well-documented data. We need to give them a better ability to do that, whether that is tooling or ways of working really remains to be seen. Personal note on this, it's no wonder it's been hard for many teams to get their domains to own their data because it's so freaking hard based on what they're able to do right now, especially on the tooling side. Number two, there is a hidden challenge in data-intensive service and application development. The version of the data, whether that's the schema, the API, and the data itself version, they need to be understood and coordinated as the developers don't control their own data sources, unlike software development of the past. But we don't have good ways of doing that right now on the processor tooling front. Data product approaches help but fall short of what we actually need to do. Number three, we are lacking the tooling to easily manage data quality for producers. While there are so many data-related tools, there's a real lack of things that make it easy to manage the quality. We're getting there on observing or monitoring the quality, but not managing and maintaining the quality. Number four, as the speed to reliably ship changes on the application side increased, microservices and DevOps, you know, 
that just made the data warehouse, the data monolith, that much harder to deal with. Instead of slow changing inputs and gentle evolution, it simply became more and more of a data exhaust model that breaks the warehouse. Number five, potentially controversial, data really needs much better version control systems and practices. Yes, there is the versioning of the data product, but the actual versioning of the data, that immutability factor, when did this data change and what was it before that, is the most important versioning for data and analytics, according to Eprup. Number six, versioning means safety. Safety for consumers, but especially for producers to be able to roll back. We need those better safety features so we can test much more thoroughly in data, but right now, we don't have great ways to do that. Number seven, the tools we have for data are so specialized. You might need to use five plus tools just to properly manage a simple ingestion process. It's just not there to support the producers well enough. Number eight, how can we observe and validate data before writing very specific testing? Testing shouldn't be the only line of defense. We need a way to define and create our quality gateways much more easily. Number nine, with fast feedback cycles and close collaboration around data, especially with data science, it makes everyone so much more productive, e.g. people aren't building on deprecated data sources, and you can get to initially testing a hypothesis in a day or, or maybe days, but instead of weeks. Number 10, it's important to think of your data like a garden instead of a single project. You must tend to it and improve it further. Your garden is never, you know, quote unquote, done, and weeds can creep in quite easily. Get that green thumb. I really like this analogy of, of really tending to your data as if it's a garden. Number 11, to build to good models in data science, you have to ask what questions can we actually ask of the data? Can we get enough of this data? Is it high enough quality, etc.? You need to answer, will we be able to achieve a life likely positive outcome and then iterate towards good and, you know, and then make it better? instead of making things all or nothing and making a static model. Number 12, not all questions can be asked of the data you have, and you need to measure how well what data you have can answer the questions you want to ask. Be realistic about what you are trying to do and what you actually can do based on what you have. Number 13, how do we create psychologically safe environments where people can fail safely and learn from that? We need iterative communications, interactions, learning, and development. Number 14, inject more empathy into your teams and communications. We need a better way to understand the challenges. What, what are we achieving together instead of what is each person's role? The sum of the parts is the purpose. Number 15, potentially controversial, are as we increase the amount of data we have and the number of people attempting to leverage that data, and let's not forget the increasing complexity of the world at large, so what the data is actually about, we are likely to see it get harder to communicate relative to data rather than easier. We have to try harder than ever to get it right or at least to an acceptable end outcome. I think this is controversial because it's not something that a lot of people are saying, that it's going to get even harder from now, so we have to try harder rather than we're going to have tools that magically fix things. 
Number 16, similarly controversial, I think our understanding of certain questions or sets of data will change more frequently than historically and communicating that and why our understanding has evolved is going to get more complex as well. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Ebru Kusen here, who is the lead consultant at Open Credo. But to be clear, she's only representing her own views. She's not representing those of the company. And we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. Um, one thing that I've kind of really tried to communicate well, and I don't think I really have, so I'm excited to kind of have a good conversation on this, is... What have we learned from distributed systems that we can actually apply to data mesh? You know, we talk about what have we learned from microservices, but I think even within that microservices revolution, there's the distributed systems revolution. And and I think how, like, what can we take from other things so we don't have to relearn the same lessons is really crucial. And then, like, how do we actually get towards collaborating together around data? This hasn't been... It doesn't feel like it should be that hard, but it seems to be. And then, you know, kind of the one canonical way of looking at things. This has been how we've thought about data. But like, can we think about this like shooting a TV show or a movie where you have multiple perspectives, multiple angles on the same thing? And that's great. That gives you more color. That gives you more kind of vibrancy to what's going on. And then, you know, how do we create that that feedback cycle to identify what is working and what should change, Right. In data, we've kind of tried one thing, and if it didn't work, it didn't work. And <laughs> that was, you know, it was kind of all or nothing. And so how do we get to that? So uh, with kind of all of that as the backdrop, uh, Abru, if you don't mind, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Hi, thank you for having me. I work for Open Credo as a lead consultant, and I'm living in London, married with a 10 years old son. I started working as a software engineer and moving to cloud as a solution architect, um, moved through a couple of programs that vary distributed computing and cloud native applications. And then for the last couple of years, I'm working on the data space, especially on the graph data modeling and graph databases. Well, and I think that journey of going from uh, software engineer into data uh, within that distributed systems is a really common one for a lot of the guests because I think it's it, there's kind of these people that have been in data for for super long and are super jaded around <laughs> how we actually get uh, work done in data um, and then how uh, we move into like how can we take what we've learned from the software engineering side so I think that's a good place to to, to start with is what, where do you think that there's this big gap in data around ways of working around, like, what did we learn from distributed systems? If you could go through, like, what are some, some things that when, like, Jamak has talked about this too, 
when she came and looked at what was going on in data, it was like, what, what is going on here? Like, why haven't we applied these practices? What were kind of your reaction as you started to come into data as to why haven't we started to apply these practices, these learnings from these other spaces? And uh, what, like, what did you, what, what were your kind of initial perspectives on that? And then we can go into where you're, you're still frustrated that we still haven't learned about how to test and iterate and, and kind of do that fast feedback cycle. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Scott, just as a little background, I, I started as a software engineer, but also I was a trainer, um, C-sharp trainer um, 15, 18 years back. Also part of the program, I was teaching SQL. So it was never data or kind of developing the, the data practices was far ahead of my uh, remit that I was also building. As a software engineer, we have to know our data models, kind of we do, we have to understand what we are uh, ingesting and storing. So it wasn't too far off in my view um, until it, it was far off, I think, in terms of the practices, creating the data warehouses as monoliths. That is where it became a challenge in terms of that centralized systems grow, the data grow, and we couldn't be able to cope with it. I think that's where it started breaking down. And Jamak was the first person, um, one of the kind of leads on the area, pioneered the idea of we should break it down. We can't. This is becoming a bottleneck. Isn't it obvious, I think? Um, for the monoliths, for software engineers, they've been through for years and we have been kind of breaking down, broken down this one, as you suggested, for the microservices and the distributed cloud native architectures allowed us to be able to iterate and deploy um, more frequently where that kind of the DevOps initiative and part of is agile, part of is DevOps. Um, those two practices enabled to be able to break it down, ship more features as well as um, own what you have built. But the data kind of the small, I, maybe it did actually create a counter intuitive um, way as in all the software was doing the right things, all the infrastructure teams started building um, their automation and release cycles faster, maybe we forgot and it did create more work for the data teams to be able to cope with that challenge. Yeah, when you think about upstream changes and you think about how that's traditionally broken things, be, you know, it was kind of where's the boundary between your work as a software engineer and it, it if then it gets handed over to the data people and you don't care, if you're creating more and more churn upstream, they're trying to figure out like, how do we take this data? And it's changing more and more frequently because you're capable of it. I think that's a good point. And, and I think what you're talking there as well about the, the monolith is where data has been, but it's also been like, it's been this monolith that's been tied to these things that are just turning around and changing so quickly. So like, do you think then in data that we should be looking at very, very fast changes and, and change release cycles? Does that create the churn for the consumers? It's delivering value, right? The, what we are after is to be able to deliver the value for the customer when needed, time to market, and to be able to deliver features or the requirements faster. Whatever Block said is the challenge. 
in terms of um, and there is a level of balance that we can't always go faster. Sometimes we need to go slow and not every architecture or design paradigm is implementable, acceptable for everyone, which means um, monolith is okay for some of the software teams. It's not the microservices is the crystal clear bullet for everyone. Even Sam Neumann says this kind of, he has a presentation talking about um, after so many years of inviting everyone, um, evangelism in the microservices, he mentioned that monolith can be also a good um, option for when it's required. It's not always silver bullet. Yeah, I think that, I mean, Jamak has said that, I've said that about data mesh too, where it's like, this isn't the thing for everybody. And all these people are like, everybody should do this. And it's like, are, are you crazy? Like, if if you don't need, like, coming from the distributed systems world, if you don't need to distribute your systems, don't distribute your systems. If you If it's easier to keep it as a monolith, then it's fine to keep it as a monolith until it's not delivering that value, right? It's the the cost benefit, and you know the the data monolith grew well past its cost benefit. But that's because anytime we tried to decompose it, it led to um, it led to data silos instead of you know something that's decomposed and, and loosely coupled and working together. And so, like when you think about what you've seen from that microservices world, is there anything that you think, I really wish we could figure out how to do this in data, but we haven't yet? Or like, is is it that kind of fast iteration, but without creating downstream churn, right? Like, because people, data consumers expect stability. And, you know, or, or is it that we just haven't learned how to do APIs because, you know, you can change your, um, on the microservices side, you can change your systems very, very quickly. But if you have a stable API, nobody really cares that the underlying implementation has changed versus the API. So is it like that we have to think about how we actually build that API? Like what, what would you say is, is the thing in data when you really focus on data and go, I really wish we had this, or I really wish we could figure out how to do this. Is there anything that kind of sticks out? It does actually, and I can walk through the, in a um, iterative of the kind of story uh, line. Mary, as a software engineer, the first thing we did was to be able to commit, which means that we have the versions, so that we can compare um, a line of code with the previous one, and we didn't have to duplicate. And one of the challenges when I came to the data space is lots of copies of data. This is either Excel sheets. I've been to the environments where financial reports from multiple systems, most of the time the same, either Salesforce or the kind of XYZ sources, duplicated and terabytes of data, if not megabytes, um, have, been have been collected and stored in a NAS drive or shared drive. and People rely on those Excel sheets without thinking why we are not having an access, a centralized place where we can discover the data, use the relevant version which we need. And we know the owner of this. It's, it's coming to the point where it's unmanageable. 
um, the same thing happens BigQuery, kind of moving from Excel sheets to the cloud, making the data lakes didn't help as well because the same trouble came into the place where BigQuery customer table, where is it? When you ask the question, you have hundreds of customers table with the people name on it, with the versions of it, date time. So we had so many copies of the customer table it's impossible to identify which one is the correct one, who is feeding this data, where it came from, who is going to use it. Can I trust it or is it going to be deleted tomorrow? Is it a temporary table someone has done on the fly? There is no ownership, there is no relationship and this is the no blame culture, kind of. It's not the data team's responsibility or the centralized people has to manage, but also um, like the Boy Scout or kind of everyone should keep a tidy, clean, their own neighborhood idea because there's no ownership, there's no clean up process. So everything becomes a mess. And as a consumer, as the downstream, upstream kind of, you can't have that reliability between trust in systems. That's one of the challenge, kind of the versioning Data contracts is very popular right now on the data space. It's fortunate or unfortunate, I'm not quite sure. But um, yeah, we should be able to version the data. It's either the APIs or it's literally versioning the data, being able to compare the previous version, like the data lakes, um, data tables. We should be able to identify what the version of data is and which one we are using. That's one thing, um, just to start with. the challenge I haven't seen is the maintain of the maintainers of the system. Uh, as a software engineer, when we had the monoliths, we had trouble because we were the people who were tired of this amount of work. It was too challenging. We didn't want to do the other part of the yearly annual releases that we had to collate and kind of um, go to the production, and if there is a mistake or change, it had to take weeks to recover and fix it. Um, I remember just spending five days fixing Git, just because the management changed their idea, um, changed their plan, and that project wasn't go live, so we had to roll back. It's just five days of nine to five um, responsibility to roll back that change. It's just not. Um, worth it, I think. It's something we have we had to learn as software engineers, kind of. We started complaining about it, and that's why we did accept the microservices will help. It will less create less pressure for us and be able to focus on what we are doing and deliver the features to the production, make us happy, go to sleep nice, um, and without disruptions rather than waiting for a year and seeing it fail or have to roll back, which is the worst case. Right now, the data, I think the data teams need to understand and accept that whatever they are deploying to production or they are building the ivory towers over years or months, this is not reliable, it's not maintainable. It's too much work and there's a better way of dealing with this, um, with the smaller chunks of data and more ownership from the data teams, product teams, sorry, product data teams. Well, but I mean, that's the the thing is, if we're not talking purely data mesh or you're talking the transitory state from 
we're not doing data mesh to we're doing data mesh, it's not a one or a zero. And so the data teams do have to continue, like they have to own a lot of this stuff as you're doing. It's not, this is the thing that, that frustrates me about talking to somewhat to data people around people who haven't done the software engineering, who can have kind of multiple states in their head of ones in data, it's been a one or a zero, uh, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, I don't want to categorize everybody, but like this, but like ownership and things like that. And when you're on a journey, it's a transition. And so a lot of what you were talking about there as well is one, <laughs> it sounds like you're frustrated that people don't, they, they understand that they're in pain, but they don't understand the cause of the pain and they don't understand that they can get past the pain, that we can do something better to get past it because we've seen that on the software side. And, and maybe not understand is the right word, but it's, it's they don't believe it or, or whatever and, and that we have to kind of work with each other to get to that, that comfortability level. Um, and then... Uh, one thing I'd like to dig into what you were talking about is versioning. So I don't know if, if if it's putting you on the spot to ask you for a definition of what versioning means. Is this a versioning of the schema? Is it a versioning of you know the API? Or is it a versioning of the actual data itself? When you think about immutability, right? It's like, when did this thing change? What was the the state? You know, when when did I last check if this changed? What was the state when I changed? But are we keeping the log of what were the past things or not? And you know, different use cases require that differently. But you know, when you think about on the operational plane, you're saying what is the current state? You know, you're generally not saying what was the past state. You're not asking for that. But in data, we kind of are. And so, are you talking about? versioning the schema? Are you talking about versioning of the actual values of the data? Are you talking about even versioning of the semantics? And it's like, this is what this used to mean. And this is what it now means. Like, it just becomes this big morass. So like, what what are your thoughts there? Like, I, I'm, again, I'm not trying to put you on the spot and say, define versioning for everyone for all time. But like, how do we start to approach that? I think I can't do that as well. And it's not my... Um... Yeah, and I wouldn't be able to answer that in a whole generic one answer. But for the specific one is the data itself, so that we have traceability is my concern. It comes with the schema and other things as well. I think that's um, a layer of it, the, the reflection of it. Um, metadata space is harder um, because it does require integration with the business teams as well as the um data teams. To answer your question, actually, the versioning of the data is more important. That's why I gave the Delta Lake example, um, Delta Table example, where you can see the history of it. You have the um, versioning enabled with the timestamps for each change. How does it impact the data and when did it happen? Otherwise, we lose traceability. I, I think this is where we are DVC, kind of the, the data version control systems similar will emerge, is my expectation, that we will have more tools to support everything you suggested, um, kind of to, to be able to identify what has been changed and how we deploy. If we look at the database deployments within the last 20 years I was part of, we never to manage deploy data aligned with software 
perfectly. There was always this backward compatibility of the data and the software itself where it's been deployed and data had to always be the harder part of the deployment and the software should have to align itself which version of the data it's been using. And that's where it comes because the data had never the versioning mindset in it. When we do our production deployments, either it's blue-green or any other, we had to take care of which version of the database we are deploying and how much change it's going to impact with the code itself. If what part of the data fails will impact which part of the software. So there is interlink relationship between and data and software. We never managed to un- unwind and, and untwine. They were all related and that's why possibly this is where we are, that the data itself is unmanageable and there are not enough tools and support to be able to identify where are we as a state with this data, what's going to, what did happen yesterday and what will happen, kind of what's the impact of this change is going to be in the production tomorrow. Yeah, I think this is where it gets difficult for me around thinking where do we go from here? Because you are talking about how intertwined things are, right? Like how they're like the data and the software are are very, very, but do you try to have a very, very clear boundary? And so then you say, okay, you know, boundaries create friction. And so then you're like, okay, we're trying to create this very, very clear boundary versus, uh, so we completely, um, you know, kind of decouple, the software and the data, but that doesn't really make a lot of sense because the software is evolving with what's happening in the real world. So what you're sharing from a data perspective, shouldn't that evolve too? And it it just becomes this like, I I don't know how we end up doing this because I think, and we'll see patterns emerge and we're seeing some patterns emerge, but we're still very early days in really thinking about how do we do this and how do we do it to prevent, um, data silos and all of that stuff too, where we don't just like say, okay, I'm going to, you know, limit my blast radius on everything. I have to think about how this is loosely coupled, but still coupled right? <laughs> and that it's not, everything is free floating in, in, in and of itself. So um, yeah. And, and I think a lot of what you're talking about there as well, the, the versioning kind of had the conversation about um, CDC or change data capture and how, it's the change of something in a database versus what happened in the real world. Like what was the business event that actually happened and like, how do we actually share that? And uh, I, I don't want to get too far into that because that's, that's a, a three hour conversation. <laughs> um, but so one thing that we were talking about in the pre-call was how do we actually look at collaborating with each other around this? Right. Is it just that we have to share more information with each other or is it that we need new ways of working together that we can actually get to a way where the data consumers can share what their actual needs are and then the producers can react to that? Like what what are you seeing of kind of early days, whether it's data mesh or not, but kind of around these concepts? What are you seeing of, of the ways of working and, and why is this so hard? Do you have the secret answer that everyone's looking for for why is this so hard? Uh, it's um, I don't have the super answer for this, unfortunately, but um, it comes with um, organizational structures. I think where Conway Law, as part of the design of the organization, enforce your 
software architecture is something we've seen before, and I can tell the same thing with the data as well. Whatever your organizational structure is, how people are communicating does reflect into the data um, architecture or the, the schemas or the kind of the relationships between tables does impact how people are communicating. So if we don't solve the human aspect of it, yes, we can't solve the consumer producer aspect of it. Um, the federated console kind of does help to identify each selective representative of the product teams, I believe. It, any representative, any data champion that being selected, that they can identify for the producers what's the responsibilities, what they can suggest, kind of their capabilities in terms of what they are going to share um, and what the consumers are interested in. Um, I, I'm seeing it's wild out there because from the producer perspective, they have the ownership, they have the control and they have limited capacity, so they do publish whatever they want to do. Uh, but they have to be useful. And from the consumer side, as part of the machine learning algorithms that I'm working on or kind of the feature engineering I have to do, they do all require clean data, reliable data. And that's where um, it's too much work for the producers, I think. It's too much responsibility. From the perspective of the producers to be able to publish clean data, it's such a hard and tremendous amount of work. I usually put this as an, an example where the Sisyphus um, has been asked to deliver the rock. There is always, um, he's been punishing the underworld and he has to clean the data. This the kind of data engineer's responsibility and now producers are owning that responsibility. They have to publish constantly um, the new versions of the data to make it trustworthy. Is a big job. Um, fitness functions to help how good you are, what version of the data, what you are publishing, and is it a good data that we can publish? That's where I think trade-off happens between the consumer and producer. Yeah, I think what you're talking there is is the big challenge I see in when people try and shove the ownership onto the uh, producers instead of give them the capabilities to actually take up, to step up and own that ownership, where again, we're trying to treat, I started to talk about this as treating data ownership as a hot potato, right? Like if you're treating data ownership as a hot potato, you're obviously doing it wrong because it, you're not adding that value. You're not, you're not, you're treating it as something that you don't want to do anymore. So now you're handing it over or saying, I need this from you, so you need to do it. But like, you know, uh, I don't know your, your, your background, Abru, but if I were to say, um, I need you to do this nuclear engineering for me to, to deal with this, <laughs> this nuclear power plant, it's about to melt down. And they just said, hey, I need you to do this. You're like, okay, I want to do this for you because I don't want this to go terribly. But, oh, you know, like that's it may not be quite at that level, but it kind of is. And we, we don't have the tools and we don't even have the ways of working to do this all that well. We don't have the tooling to do that well, right? Like the um, observability tooling at least tells us when we're not doing it well, right? We've now got some data observability tooling that tells us when we're not doing it well, but we don't have 
the toolkit and the, the kind of easier buttons, you know, I don't think we'll ever have an easy button around data ownership, but yeah, I, I think, so if a company is trying to head down this route, data mesh or not, where do you think they can go right now? Where, where can they improve? Is it on upping capabilities? Is it on trying to create the tooling to make the actually managing of quality? I, I've talked about the, the polluting the river thing. I know Jamak hates any more water puns or, or, or water related things of data lake and streams and all that. But, you know, it's much easier to prevent or to, to keep the water clean by preventing the pollution instead of cleaning it up after the water's been polluted. Like, and so we want to push that upstream, but do we have the capability to make it somewhat easy or somewhat approachable if somebody even had the capabilities to do that right now? It comes with the tool sets, isn't it? Even we are, it's a socio-technical change. We are talking, we are all human, but also how much support we have from the technology is the question. How much support that we can give to them producers so it makes their life easy as well as the consumers i don't think we are there yet and that's one of the symptoms even if we have thousands of new tools emerging every other day and it's kind of i may be punished for (laughs) saying this like the data uh, landscape doesn't have enough tools to support this very big word to eat that i have to later but I i i believe that it will be more uh, because there is not enough capability right now to do out of the box. And it takes time for everyone to be able to do what they need. There are so many tools that are so specialized, so narrowed for specific use cases, which means that it, I need to use five, ten tools for the simple ingestion process because they are using either different databases of different cloud platforms or different um, requirements, uh, file formats they are including. And it's not there yet is my point to be able to cover and support the producers for the data quality um, out of the box. One aspect is being able to observe the data and kind of validate before writing the checks. Because if you write the checks, it's very prescriptive. You have to tell ABC, I will check what you have or what you don't have. But it will take um, lots of effort and open to abuse from the people not to be able to implement it properly. So like the unit testing and the testing frameworks we had, some I've been to the companies, some unit tests were not used at all. And I've been to some companies that have thousands of unit scenarios that they had to go through before each deployment. So it's a company culture as well as being able to identify what's your quality gateways um, with the most agile and simple way that you can trust that data. Yeah, I think that TDD of test-driven development is something that we don't have around data and exactly what you're talking about. And the issue as well comes in with the semantic meaning going with it, right? Like exactly what you're talking about of the ones and the zeros. It's You can somewhat develop the tests around that, but it's still difficult and we aren't providing the right tooling to people. But then like, you know, I had uh, Abi Sivasilam on from Flexport in, in um, I think episode nine, and he was talking about at their company, the concept of the word order has grown 
10x in three years because it used to be like this kind of very narrow like thing versus now order like encompasses so much more because they've expanded what they're doing so much more. So the word order itself. So like we we can potentially do the test driven development around the ones and the zeros, but how do we embed with that the semantics? And and Chris Ricamini in his episode um, was talking about at uh, at WePay, what they did was they provided um, a thing that when people like the software engineers were trying to do a pull request that would change anything, it would block the PR if it would break anything downstream. And so that's providing them the, the understanding that this is messing with something downstream, at least know that it's messing with it. If it is a necessary change, oh, you really, really need to drop this column because it's creating massive performance issues and things like that. Okay, let's have that conversation. But most of the time, the data producers don't know what is actually happening downstream of them. And they so they they either you're you're either saying you have to understand the way everybody consumes from you and we're not providing you any of that information or you can't make any changes, right? And it's like, or you just go, okay, I'm just going to ignore this and I'm going to do my work and it's going to cause chaos, but I can't care because you're not giving me the capability to actually do anything productive if I care. And so like that type of tooling, exactly what you're talking about, but we do need broader I mean, Jamax talked about this too. We need broader coverage around what are we actually doing and, and why do we have tools? You know, you talked about all these micro tools and things like that. The handoff between tools, the integration between tools is friction. So we have all this unnecessary friction and it's not just, you know, and then you get into the economic friction of, oh, I have to go through 8 million companies buying processes and, oh no, they just have a cloud thing. I could just th- swipe in my credit card. Well, great until you're actually using it at scale. And then all of a sudden, you know, then you have to go and talk to them and then they've got you where you're already kind of hooked on their, their thing and you can't easily replace it. And so then do you have to do an anti-corruption layer for every single tool? And it just, it creates this, this massive challenge. So I, I think a lot of what you're saying there is, is circling back on this and around the culture, like, which do you think has to move first? Do you think the tooling has to change? I think like what we've seen with data mesh is that the the marketing around the tooling has changed, but none of the <laughs> the tooling has really changed. Do we need kind of bold tooling vendors and and things that are going to come out and and create something new that allows us to do these ways of working, or are you just kind of remains to be seen because we don't know which one's going to move first, which one is chicken and which one is egg. No, I I think um, both of them will move. It's independent of each other. I don't see one. Without other, um, it, it does motivate with the culture, the people. If we don't kind of change them, it's not going to change anyway to start with. Um, so yes, the ways of working in terms of the data teams, how they interact, how they produce the data and how they consume the data. Um, and the skill sets as well, right? This is the data analytics teams, the data scientists, because we have too many consumers now at the end of the reporting, whereas previously it was just dashboards and kind of basic reports. Now we are live, we have live data that we have to train and kind of run multiple times that test data, which did require more focus on the quality of the data produced 
less than the dashboards we had before is uh, because they have to go through multiple processes and we need to assess the accuracy of the models. Yeah, I think what you're talking about there is what we need to to see much more of is that everybody is evolving together and that we have a little bit more of a um, collaborative thing instead of that your team does this, my team does this, instead of our, our whole team. It's not full stack developers, it's full stack teams, it's full stack, full capabilities. And I think that's important. I think we need to identify where there are gaps and that those gaps aren't the end of the world. We just have to work on, on making progress together. It is. It's similar to the two pizza teams or something, really. When we have the capability, it's the longer the thread is, the pipe is, it's hard to get the right um, outcome. And you start doing the Chinese whispers one to the other and they move along. We need to start doing it. My last project was uh, with a small team and I was responsible for doing the, the kind of um, data ingestion, all the data engineering part of the work, working closely to the data scientist team, which kind of enabled that short feedback cycles. And it was amazing because literally within the same day, you could see, oh, no, this feature is not available or the proposed model hypothesis is wrong because that data is not available. So we have to think about other ways. It's just such a nice way of implementing and iterating through and kind of eliminating the waste hypothesis, the time we spend on those ones. The longer it gets, the data science team may not be able to see that. And the time they spend on their hypothesis to create their own ivory model, um, machine learning models, they are not going to be deployed or even they deploy, it will take months back to recover and ingest the new data because there's always new source of data somewhere or we can kind of make the combinations to um, do the feature engineering, essentially, kind of um, create more features or understand the impact of those ones. So it takes time from um, a data where it's ingested as, yes, the source of the data shouldn't be far away from the consumers, um, but also it shouldn't be an exhaust, the data exhaust, uh, similar to the oil, where you should be just generating them, it should be created. It does require lots of effort. Um, with this is obvious example that we talked about, Albarcom came to the conclusion that if you accept that's your life, Sisyphus uh, became happy, content, and maybe that's our job, kind of, as the data people, we need to just um, keep making better, but without any, without, any, without any expectations or being able to keep it going, kind of, it's, there will be an iteration tomorrow, but there is no final point we arrive. All the machine, uh, like the machine learning models, the software applications we are using right now, they don't have the final version, the iOS, the kind of, if you think about Apple, the, all the products for the last 15 years, 20 years, they change a lot. They didn't have the features, they have brand new features, and next year they will have more different features that we never imagined happening. Data is the same. The quality of the data or the source of the data, the shape, size of the data will change every day. 
the new capabilities will be implemented and we need to keep in growing. It's like more of gardening, keeping attention and making sure that we do every day um, make it better. But it's the perspective we need to put in, I think. We need to be a bit more patient and attentive. Well, and I, I have two kind of competing questions here, and you can choose which one you want to, to answer. So a lot of what you're, you're talking about there seems to be um, like that kind of more close collaboration between uh, producers and consumers. But when I think about a lot of who are the end consumers of data, right? You're talking about data scientists and things like that, that they're going to be more understanding that, hey, we're trying to get to directionality instead of a final answer. So like, is that where where you're seeing that like you can have, you can go to them and say, hey, this data isn't perfectly clean yet, but like, let's test our hypothesis on it and figure out if there's even anything here rather than you going and spending, you know, days or weeks trying to build this up. And then you find out that we, you could have <laughs> in, in uh, you know, three hours of work, you could have tested this uh, against some not great quality data, but good enough quality to tell you, is there any there there? Or the other aspect that I'm worried about is, when you talk to execs, execs expect a one or a zero answer. And actual data, actual information, the world is gray, right? It is not black or white. How do we get, do we have to bring the execs to understanding that there is these these areas of gray or do we have to understand that, hey, <laughs> when we're, we're working within the groups of the people who are data literate, they understand that there's all these areas of gray, but then all of a sudden there's this hard boundary where it's no longer gray, it's we've bifurcated into black and white, where there is an answer, where there is, you know, how many customers do I have? To me, as somebody who's been super focused on the business side, that's, to me, is just a silly question in a lot of cases, because it's like, what do you mean by customer is a valid question because it's like, well, I want you to, I want you to be able to tell me what are you trying to figure out? Why are you asking this question? What do you mean? Why am I asking why, how many customers we have? Because what are you trying to figure out? Like, what's the point of asking that question? But that has not been traditionally something where you're going to make a lot of friends doing that. So like either one, do you, do you want to go into about like, do we have to have that really hard boundary and how do we think about that? But also like you're talking about this, this like joint collaboration, like do are did you have to train people to understand that, Hey, this stuff isn't perfect, but we're just kind of, we're trying to figure out if we should invalidate this within, you know, a little bit of work instead of really prove that it's, it's, you know, I guess test whether it's invalid because you never validate a hypothesis. You know, I know that whole thing, but you know, how do you think about those kind of two issues and questions and ways of working? Yeah, that's a great question actually for, my last project, we ingested 1.7 terabyte data. It's big in terms of kind of, not big, it's not petabyte, sorry. It's, it's relatively um, to the people we are talking about here, but um, it was relatively big. That we, it does require schema changes. It does require ingestion. And we were going to model it in another environment. 
eight, there are so many steps in the line. And I, this is a great example of the Lego workshops we did with the microservices to be able to understand, to build the house or to tell the story of that build structure. First, you need to small start, um, start small and be able to join the plug the pieces together, Lego pieces. And the ingestion is the same, very data coming from the source. We should be able to identify how I'm going to use this data, understanding, exploring the data and putting into pieces as the small team needs to do iteratively explore ingest and automate the process so that the next model or kind of the next iteration will be easier. Um, we st- for our use case, we started doing the small batch of data just to be able to set up the framework to be able to ask the questions. So we started five questions. Are we going to be able to ask those questions, hypotheses? What do we need for those hypotheses? So modeling kind of starts at first. Anyway, you need to identify what you can ask to that data. Are the features available? Is the schema compatible with this? Am I going to be able to get enough data? What's the kind of null empty data I have? Um, what's the quality of the source I can reach onto? Are they reliable kind of the data I'm getting in is there? They are all kind of valid questions. It's not just one or zero um, that have ingested all the data and is all the models are working correctly. It's the iterations because you can't ask any question to any data. You should be able to ask the questions relevant to your data. So data dictates, unfortunately or fortunately, that what type of questions you can ask it um, and be able to go through those hypotheses. So it's the elimination process going through understanding and you can do this with small sizes and understanding what is available, what is good enough for our use cases and going through that iteration churn with the bigger data sets later on. But the first round is always implementing first, writing the small models, hypotheses, frameworks, the code to run through and automate, calculate the outcome, um, because you will have always issues either setting up the environment or setting up the models. It's a nice sprint zero exercise that you can go through and understand what's going on. Yeah. Well, and, and I think I, I really like that point. It seems like we we don't say that out loud as much as we should, but you can't ask every question against every piece of data. It, even if it feels like it should be relevant, like understanding, but like that means that like this is where I think a lot of people get really frustrated and or concerned about um, self-serve is that you say, oh, well, this has this title on this column, therefore I can ask this question against it versus no, like, and this is where I think large scale, we're going to data mesh implementations, you're going to have data Sherpas, you're going to have data librarians, right? Like librarians are the ones like anytime I've had library science people on there, they're kind of, you know, uh, pounding against their chest a little bit about we are the keepers of the knowledge and not as in you must come through us. But if you want help in your journey, we are the ones who, <laughs> who forge the path, who, who show you how to do this. And I think 
I I think the concept that people have of self-serve is completely broken because self-serve should mean that you get easy access when you understand what you're doing. But, you know, when you think about, you know, you've, you've got a kid, right? So when you think about your utensils and things like that, do you have it where when they were real little that the steak knives are, are <laughs> just, you want them to have access to get the spoon when they want that or a butter knife or something like that. But you don't want the, you know, the cooking knives and the things like that. And so, cause you can cut yourself and you don't want to, you know, I, I, a lot of the analogies I use end up treating people like their children. And that's not the case. It's that they don't know what they don't know, right? They don't know that they shouldn't do this in this way because they don't know the, the boundaries around this, the documentation, all that stuff is so difficult to say, like, if you don't understand this, you're going to hurt yourself like hot stove. And, you know, at some point it, people are going to cut themselves if you do that too much. But you also don't want to say you must, you know, like this is where a lot of the data warehouse type people, you know, especially the analysts and stuff that are like the data warehouse is the thing, you know, and we, we should never change this. And it's like, we're the only ones smart enough to do this versus like we can train these people to understand this and, and that we train people and we give people access to help much more quickly and, and that we we focus on that and that we focus on those kind of bridging solutions between things and that we we don't try and solve every challenge with tools because you know we keep trying to automate away toil but toil is the the work but human conversation isn't toil it can feel like it's toil sometimes right it can feel very very painful but like yeah so um yeah I, sorry I'm, I'm going off on one of my rants there but um so we we talked about this in, in the pre-call and kind of what you're talking about here i think wraps into the the last two things we were planning on talking together about pretty well about how do we stop looking at like there's one canonical way of doing things and how do we stop the one canonical view of data, like the MDM view of this is our golden record and this is the thing versus like everything's always changing. And if you're not prepared, you know, the real world, you you don't have a snapshot of what's happening in the real world, right? It's not an actual snapshot. You might have a snapshot of a piece of the real world, but you can't understand every aspect of everything that's going on at any one point. And then you're also, you know, 10 seconds later, everything has changed completely anyway. So like, how do we get past that and how do we stop trying to get everything perfect up front and how do we like communicate that with each other as well as like what more can we do from these feedback cycles like what more can we learn about scalable communication that we've taken from the software world not just the the APIs and things but the actual person to person communication as well big big question i know i'm sorry but i'm asking you to solve the world um, yes, it's it's a big question, and if we step back, it's creating that psychologically safe environment, kind of how you create culture, how do you make people communicating and failing safely on any environment. Um, that they can do mistakes, but it's a learning exercise rather than excelling or perfecting um, modeling. <clears throat> so rather than trying to get everything up front perfect, we should be able to do iterative deployments. That's why iterative communications, iterative development. And it's become to the human 
interactions, how you set up the teams will identify, re- actually restrict the way of people communicate. The closer producer and consumers come together, it's a better way of understanding the challenges and it's injecting more empathy um, to the teams, I believe, that they can understand, A, we have a target as a company, as the whole organization, we want to achieve this together versus, yes, this is my personal responsibility or personal job title, what it does. It comes with the great example that um, you, I, I think most of the people would know, if you ask a person what he's doing, he may tell he's just building the bricks. Or you may ask him what he's doing, he's, he may say, oh, I'm contributing to this awesome church that we built. So it's the purpose, what we are uh, doing within the organization. That will allow, I believe, with the common goal, how that people will be communicating with each other. They will have more empathy to each other and communicate between um the requirements or um, the capabilities more often so that they don't expect the perfect, they will fail, they will deliver what is available in the first iteration. It's from the buy-in, from the business as well as the technical teams. Uh, Understanding the constraints, I believe, the way coming forward and kind of expressing as much as possible What's the expected outcome? What can we achieve? What are our constraints? And this is the approach we are doing. Yeah, and, and do you think that that people are prepared when you when you talk to people? Because this seems to be a question that keeps coming up. Do you think people are prepared to iterate on their understanding, not of just how to leverage data, but of the data itself? Right. When you think about versioning of data in your mind versioning of your understanding of the world. Yes, we have to change that. But like, historically, we've told people, this is the canonical source of truth. Are people ready for that? Does it take a while for them to get to a concept where they're comfortable with the idea of, well, what we thought of the world, what the data said yesterday is is slightly different than what it says today, because we've figured out how to better drill into it, not just that the world has changed, but the world yesterday, if we were to look at it under our new lens, we'd actually see something different. And that's great because we've learned more about what we want to do. And it's like, well, so then you were wrong yesterday. How can I trust you today? That seems to be the way a lot of people approach this thought pattern. Do you think, have you seen that be the case or, or are you seeing that people are more and more aware that it's not going to be as much of a problem as, as it kind of has been historically. Like, how, how are you thinking about that? I fear it will be more um, because the more data, the more um, paradigms, the more capabilities, features, the, uh, it, it will create more triples than, I think, solutions, unfortunately. Um, it is very common that the way we articulate things either we are coming from different backgrounds different languages different 
habitats, um, technology stacks. It makes it harder to communicate, as you suggested, kind of this is what I said, or this is the versioning is my understanding. The lexical or the taxonomy of this has been recorded, communicated and approved even with the architectural decision records or the TDCs we used to have for the software may be valid for the computational federated governance teams as well, so that they propose the meaning of one uh, field in a data set. And it may change over time. Um, it, it is going to create more concern than resolution, I believe, because we will have more data and more frequent changes. Um, I don't have a solution for that, I'm afraid, Scott. I, I, I can see more trouble than the solutions. Well, I want you to save the, the world. I want you to fix everything for us. And you're not doing that. Like, Abru, I'm, I'm disappointed. I thought you were going to fix everything for everyone for all time. Right? <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's the other way around, isn't it? I'm raising more concerns and trouble coming ahead. Um, but I don't think that's bad. I think making people prepared, right? It's it's not that we're saying that that the sky is falling. We're not saying that this is the worst, but you know, these are questions that we have to to make sure people are aware of so that they're not kind of blindsided by them. So, well, I think we, we've covered a whole lot today. Uh, is there anything that we, that we didn't cover that you'd like to, or any way you'd want to kind of wrap up the episode? No, thank you so much. Awesome. Well, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you. Kind of where's the best place that going to be LinkedIn or something? Is there anything specific you'd like them following up about? I know you've got a a book as well that you've put out. So, um, you know, if you could tell people kind of what you'd like them to be following up about and, and where's the best place? I'm most of the time Twitter. I don't know how long, but still on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. Um, and I'm trying, um, yeah, uh, publish as much as I can. Um, I'm more focused on graph, kind of the special, more data, but the graph databases and the graph modeling as well as others. Um, And I'm on most of the time Twitter. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll drop links to that stuff in the show notes as per usual. And uh, Abru, thank you so much for your time today. And as well, thank you everyone out there for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Ebru Kusin, who's the lead consultant at Open Credo. You can find a link to her LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. 
Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Thank mm-hmm. you.